So, um, if you've been with us, we've been walking through this story. It's the story of the Bible. And, and the main purpose of this study is to know God, because that's the purpose of life, to know God as he revealed himself to us in his story. And I don't think there's any more powerful way to do that than to see how all of these little stories in the Bible come together to make this one story, the greatest story ever told. And that's why we're calling it his story, because this story is about him. And as you know, we've been walking through this timeline to help us keep it all together. And praise the Lord, we've knocked out the first row, okay? So we're going we're gonna to do this, your favorite part. We're going to see if you can remember the motions. If not, I promise you we're not a cult. Ready? Start at the beginning. We've got God. And we've got creation, speaks into creation. We've got the fall, okay? Then we've got the promise, the pinky promise. And we've got the flood, going down. Then the tower, the tower. And then finally, last week we added patriarchs, okay? We got the patriarchs, the old dude with beards. In those times, they actually probably didn't have beards, but we'll stick with the stereotypes. Um, so we see that God is promised. He's, remember, God created everything good. Man fell, separated from God in sin. But he said he promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent, crush his head, indicating there's a sin problem, but I'm sending a deliverer who's going to come from the, from the seed of a woman and, and deliver you from your sins, make a way back to God. And we saw last week, after the tower had been built, they tried to build themselves up, God scattered the people throughout the world like he originally told them to do. And we saw this shift in focus, where we're no longer looking at the whole population of the earth like we were in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 12, God zeroes in on one man. His name is Abraham, or Abram as he's called firsthand. And he says, from you, Abram, I'm going to make this great nation. Remember last week, we looked at these promises. And God promises this 75-year-old man, you're going to have a son. I know your wife is barren. I know you're 75 years old, but you're going to have a son. And not just a son. From this son, you're going to have this great nation. This great nation, which we know becomes Israel. And from this nation, I'm going to bless all nations through your nation. So it's this crazy, absurd promise. We said that that is an indication, and and the New Testament verifies it, that he's preaching the gospel right there. How is he going to bless all nations through the nation of Israel? It's Jesus. Jesus is going to be born from the Jewish line, and he is going to provide salvation for everyone, a blessing for all nations through the nation of Israel. Now, the rest of our story primarily will be told through the lens of the people of Israel. This is a crazy, crazy promise that God makes to Abraham. He's 75 years old. We got any 75-year-olds reproducing in the house today? Okay, anybody? I always pick on Chuck and Janice. Not to get personal, but no more kids, right? You cut it off. Yeah, we know John, so you're like, that's it. We can't, yeah, we just can't. How would you respond? How would you respond if God came to you when you're 75 years old and have been unable to have children and say, you're going to have a son. In fact, you're going to be this great nation. How does Abraham respond? How does Abraham respond? That's what we want to look at this morning. Look in uh, Genesis chapter 15. We'll have the verses on the screen, but you can follow along t- uh, primarily in the ESV. We're going to see a few things about God today. Number one, that he's protector and provider. Genesis 15, this is 10 years after God made that promise to Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, God said. Your reward will be very great. Some translations say, I am your shield and your reward. God says, I'm going to be your protector and your provider. And look how Abraham responds. Secondly, God's a promise keeper. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? 
For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. This is a moment of honesty for Abraham. This is a a raw moment where we see Abraham, even Father Abraham, the father of faith, has doubt. There's no room for doubt. There's no room for faith. And he doubts God. He says, how are you going to do this? Who's going to continue my line? He says, is it going to be Eleazar? Eleazar of Damascus, that's his head servant, what they call a steward. It's the head of his household. And it's interesting because there's a play on words here in Hebrew. The, the word, the name Eleazar of Damascus means son of possession. So he says, is my, is my servant going to be the heir of my promise? I've had no child yet. Is it going to be my servant, a mere servant that's going to be my, the heir? Because there was a tradition, a cultural tradition at the time. If you didn't have children, your inheritance would get passed on to this very person. The role that Eleazar takes, the head of his household. He goes, is this going to be this, this nobody? Eleazar's going, hey, wait a second. I could be a great heir. It's been 10 years, 10 years since God made those promises to Abraham. He is 85 years old, and he's looking at his biological clock, and he knows he ain't getting any younger. 10 years ago, I mean, think, 10 years is a long time. 10 years ago, I was in a college dorm room, wearing nothing but yellow, pulling, <laughs> call, pulling pranks on my college crush. In that time, in the span of 10 years, my brother and sister have both got married and have five kids between them. They've been a lot more productive than I have. <laughs> 10 years is a long time. And Abraham, God makes this promise to Abraham when he's 75, and you understand that Abraham does not have Isaac until he's 100 years old. That's 25 years. I'm 32. That's almost my entire lifespan. I get impatient waiting two minutes for my hot pocket to get done in the microwave. And here's God saying, saying, 25 years later, I made this promise to you, and two and a half decades go by, and nothing. You think Abraham might have some doubts along the way? As he continues to get older, continuing to get less fertile? But it's good. It's good that he expresses these concerns to God. We need to, and it's something we have as Christians that we need to get over, is we think, like, I just got to come to God and say, God, thank you for what you've done. I know everything in my life's falling apart, but you're great, you're good. And, and we don't, we have this hard time to get past that and to be honest with God with who we really are. God wants a relationship with us, and he wants all of us, including our emotions. He knows our hearts anyway, so we need to come to God honestly, like little babies do. We need to come to God when we're angry, Okay. Or even like this girl, this is, she's like evil. Look at that, that's scary. We need to come to him and be able to, to say, why, God? Why have you done this to me? How long, David said, the David, the man after God's own heart said, how long will you forget me forever? And you might be thinking this morning, how are you letting all of this dump on me? I, one person should not be able to handle all of this stuff, Lord. And maybe we come to him in our sadness, okay? You see this little guy. Or look at this one. How could that kid? I would give him anything in the world he wanted. I would just not be able to say no. And we come to God in our frustrations. We even come to God and say, "I doubt you even exist," because it's in our hearts and we're thinking it. We need to get that off our. And listen, God's shoulders are big enough to handle our, our honesty. Okay, that doesn't scare him. That doesn't throw him off. He knew those thoughts before you ever even thought them. And so we come to our God because he's big enough. Listen, God is not deaf to your questions. 
He's not apathetic towards your feelings. First Peter, Peter says, casting all your anxieties upon him. He says, are you afraid? Are you freaked out? Do you not know what's coming tomorrow? Cast that on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you. He's concerned. He notices you. And in that relationship, he's dying. Don't you want the people you know and love to come to you honestly? I'm telling you how they really feel. God wants that from us. And I love the tenderness that God responds to Abraham here. Look at this. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This is to Abraham. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God says, no, no, no. Abraham, look at me. Let me be crystal clear. You are going to have a son, your own son, and it's that son that's going to be your heir. See, in scripture, sonship and heirship go hand in hand. And then God says, come here. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Remember the scene in The Lion King? Mufasa takes Simba out. Look at the stars, Simba, right? And he says, he looks at him, he hasn't come out. Oh, you can barely see that. So he says, look at the stars. He says, put your coat on. Come out here with me. Look up in the sky. What do you see? And then I love, he says, count the stars if you're able to. That you can't even count all the stars that are in the heavens. But God says, you know how many stars there are? And actually, do you know how many stars there are? Right now, the astronomers say their best guess from what they can see, what we know, there's 70 sextillion stars. We talked about this in our creation message. That's seven with 22 zeros. 70,000, million, million, million. And that's all that we know right now. I mean, there's probably way more than that. Now, this is an exaggeration because there's actually only been 100 billion people approximately that have lived on the earth all time. So he's not saying literally, but he's saying, look, up to the stars, you are going to have a lot of descendants. Don't lose hope, Abraham. Believe that I am faithful to my promises, and I've promised to bless you in this way. And I love that. You know, he also said, look at the sand on the seashores. Remember that? He said, your your descendants are going to be like the sand and the stars. Whether Abraham, when he's walking throughout his day, whether he looks down or he looks up, he's going to remember God's promise to him. And on the darkest of nights, when he sees those stars, he remembers his God and his God's promises to him. And he has courage. And many times you and I are looking around for answers. Well, what we need to do is look up. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, God's will must be fulfilled in God's way in God's time. So what does that mean? Listen, God did not ask Abraham and Sarah to figure out a way to have a kid. You got to go see a bunch of doctors. You need to go taking a bunch of medicine. You got to plan. You got to figure out how you're going to be able to procreate at the age of 100. No. All God is asking for them is to be available. To be available for him to accomplish his purposes in them and through them. And I love this in Hebrews 11. It says, and so a whole nation came from one man who, and then look at this compliment, who was as good as dead. Okay, how do you like that? Abraham, you look like death, right? He says he waited until the point when Abraham looked like he was dead. That he was infertile, barren, incapable of having children. And you go, why did he do that? God, they didn't realize at that time, God was waiting for him to become to the point where he was as good as dead so God alone could receive the glory. Whereas there's no other answer. There's no other explanation. And many times in our lives, God is taking us to a point And you might say, I can't do it any longer. Or there's no way I could respond, God. You're calling me into this, and there's no way I could do that. When he told me, when I I was going to become the pastor here, I'm going, God, I can't do that. He goes, exactly. 
God takes us to a place where the only way this is going to happen is through his power so that he alone can get the glory. And then we turn to verse 6. And in verse 6, uh, verse 6 of, of, of Genesis 15 has been said to be the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It tells us how Abraham was saved. And this is so central to our beliefs. It says, and he believed, and Abraham, he, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. The pronouns get lost there, so look at the New Living. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous. Why? Because of his faith. This is salvation by faith. This is the core of our theology, of what we believe about God and man. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning, and I want to zero in on three words that are so central to our relationship with God. And that's what he says here in this verse, righteousness, counted, and, and uh, belief. So let's look at this. First of all, righteousness. You understand that the greatest need in our world today, and we have a very desperate world, the greatest need in our world today is righteousness. It's righteousness. And why is that? You and I were created for a relationship with God. And you know what's hindering that? We're not righteous. We're not good. You know what the word righteousness means? That's a big fancy Bible word. It just means to be right. It means to be without sin. It means to be acceptable before God. There's nothing wrong in you that you're right. But the problem is that we are, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they were separated from God, okay, God is the only one who's good. So if we're separated from God, there can be no goodness in us. And so everybody that came from Adam and Eve were born not into righteousness, but into wrongness. Okay, we'll just invent words. We are born wrong. And so Romans 3 says, as scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. There is nothing good in any of us, period. Have a nice day. Verse 23, for everyone sinned. We fall short of God's glorious standard. Maybe I'm better than my neighbor. But I do not meet up to God's standard of holiness, God's standard of glory, God's standard of rightness. So it's a problem. God demands for us to have a relationship with him, we have to be as perfect as he is, as right as he is. Anybody in this room qualify for that? There's nothing you and I can do to pay our sin debt, let alone attain a perfection that matches God's. And that's Abraham's predicament. So how does he have a relationship with God? Look at what the verse says. He counted it. God counted it to him as righteousness. This is the second word we got to understand. The word counted. My brother and I, we use the same bank, okay? And I, one day I went to the bank teller, and they handed me my current balance, and it was way higher than it normally is. And they had accidentally get credited Jeremy's. They had placed his paychecks into my account, I said, that's a great system. <laughs> Jeremy works, and I get the money. We're brothers. I, you know, we, we each have a role here. I'm good with that. So Jeremy's paychecks were placed onto my account. That's the word that God is using here, that, that, that's being spoken to Abraham here. It's an accounting term. The word counted, it means credited or imputed is the big word. And it just means to place on one's account. To place on one's account. Remember that, that certificate of debt that we talked about earlier? Abraham, like you and I, he owes God. He's in the red. He owes God a sin debt. Because of his sin, he has to pay for his sins. How does he pay for his own sins? He remains in the red for the rest of eternity. Because he has to continue to pay for his sins for as long as his sins are offensive to God, which is forever. So he can continue to be in the red, or God can do this. God says, I'm going to place my righteousness on your account. 
I'm going to credit it. I'm going to count you as righteous. He says, I'm going to place my perfection on your account and, and my righteousness far outseeds your sinfulness. And Abraham, we know that Abraham believed that he was counted right, that when God looked at him, he said, you are right in my sight, I accept you, I can have a relationship with you. Hebrews 11 tells us this, Abraham was confidently, confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. He believed when he physically died, he would go and live with God forever, that God would accept him, that God would count him right in his sight and would have a relationship with him. What audacity. Why did he believe that? Why was God able to, how, how did Abraham both get rid of his sin problem and attain a righteousness that matched God's? That takes us to our third word. He believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it, counted what? His faith, his belief, to him as righteousness. Now this word belief is an easy one to misunderstand. So as always, we've got to say, what does the Bible say about it, not what do we say about it? Listen, the word faith, believe, Trust, confidence, those are all synonyms. They're very interchangeably used in Scripture. But first I want to talk for a second about what faith is not, because often it's as important to say what you're not saying as it is to say what you're saying. You see what I'm saying? Faith is not blind optimism. It's all going to work out, right? It's all rainbows and unicorns. How's your positive mental attitude? Boy, am I enthusiastic. It's not this like, if I think right, it will go right. Okay, that's not faith, that's lunacy, okay? Faith is not blind optimism, it's also not a hope-so feeling. Well, I really hope God's going to save me. I really hope that what he said is true. And if I just kind of hope it into existence, then it'll be there. It's not a hope-so feeling. It's also not just intellectual assent. It's not just simply knowing the facts. You pass the Jesus test, whoopee-doo, okay? It's not just knowing the, the, the facts of Scripture, It goes deeper than that. And finally, it's not just believing in spite of evidence. Listen, we don't have this mountain of information that says everything that we believe about God and what he said in his word is wrong. All these things that have proved the Bible wrong and disproved the existence of God. And we say, I don't care. I'm just going to keep believing it. I'm going to keep believing it. That's not faith either. So what is faith? And I love this. The literal translation. When when he says, Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, and he believed the Lord. You know what the literal translation is? Amen, God. Amen, God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to send a savior through your line. Amen, God. It shows I believe, I agree with what you're saying. The, the, the Hebrew translation could be to lean, and I love this, to lean your whole weight on it. Faith is to lean everything that you are into this thing. Abraham's leaning his entire weight onto what God has told him, who God is. And I love the way Warren Wearsby defines this. It says, true biblical faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. You can meditate on that for the rest of the morning. It's in your notes. True biblical faith is confident obedience, and we'll get to that in a second, to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. Abraham's circumstances seemed impossible. He's 85, and they're barren. The consequences were unknown and they were scary. Pick up everything you own and go to a completely new place. But despite his circumstances and despite the potential consequences, he went in faith. But the question is, faith in what? Faith in what? This is a very important aspect of faith. Faith demands an object. And here's what I mean by that. You don't just have faith. 
Oh, he's a man of faith. He has a lot of faith. Well, she has 50 faith, but I have only 33 faith. I need more faith, right? It's not an amount. That's why it's not an amount of faith. It's the object of your faith, okay? That's why Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell that giant mountain to jump into the water. It's not about the size, the amount, the size. It's the object. What is your faith in? We all have faith. The question is, what is our faith in? What was Abraham's faith in? His faith was in God. It was in God, who he was, and therefore what he had told him. Listen, God told Abraham, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a great nation. And what Abraham believed, what Abraham leaned his entire weight on, was that God is all-powerful, so that God can do whatever he says. God is a truth-teller. He's not lying to Abraham. God is a promise-keeper. Whenever he says something, he's faithful to follow through on it. And because he believed who God was, he believed in the character of God, he believed in what God told him, he believed that he was going to have a son. And God counted that faith as righteousness. But listen, this is important. Faith does not stop with a mental assent to facts. Like we said, it's not just, it's not just knowing the facts. The demons know the facts. Okay? They shudder when they see God, James says. It goes deeper than that. Genuine faith results in obedience. It results in action. If uh, George Martin and I Decide to go on a mandate. We're gonna go to the go to the amusement park together. We really need to get away, George. It's it's we're overdue. Yeah, that's right. And I come up and I say, George, do you believe this roller coaster is gonna stay on the tracks? Do you believe it's gonna be able to hold us? Do, do you believe that it's safe? And he goes, Yeah, of course I do. So I go to take George's hand, because we're on a mandate. Come on, George. And all of a sudden, he freezes like a popsicle, right? Uh, you know, my back, my this and my that. And all of a sudden, he's not willing to step onto that roller coaster. Now, maybe, you know, some people just are scared to go on roller coasters. And that's where the analogy can break down. But the fact is, he may say he believes with his words. But in his heart, he shows that he doesn't believe it as evidenced in his actions. You all came in this morning and you sat down on a chair. You exercised faith. And you know what you exercised faith in? Not in the chair as much as the one who made the chair. You trusted that whoever made that chair made it sturdy enough to handle you and your rear end. And so you sat down. You evidenced your faith in the one that made the chair by sitting in it. Now my family, if I built a chair and said, go ahead and sit in it, nobody would touch it. Because they know my carpentry skills, right? My one-year-old niece, June, would have been able to do a better job than me. But faith isn't saying it's a sturdy chair. Faith is saying, I believe that the person who made it made a sturdy chair, therefore, I'm going to sit in it. You remember the, story, the movie Indiana Jones? And there's this huge chasm between Indy and the other side, and he has this book that tells him all these secrets, and in it, it says, right here, when you get to this chasm, you've got to take a step of faith. So he's going, okay, what does that mean? How do I? And so what he does, and, and you hear his, his dad cheering him on in the background, you must believe, boy, he shouts out to him. I actually just did that illustration to show my Sean Connery off. Um, he says, you must take this step of faith, but what's the problem? There is this endless chasm, and I don't know for sure if I'm going to step out and my foot's going to fall in two feet, or if I'm going to go plummeting to my doom. Same thing's going on here with Abraham. I love what it says in Hebrews eleven eight. It was by faith 
that Abraham what? Obeyed. His faith led to obedience. When God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without what? This is the key. He went without knowing where he was going. He took the step of faith not knowing where his foot would land. There could have been a lot of but what ifs with Abraham. But what if I go and, and there's enemies there? What if I go and there's, and what if I, and what, and that's the point. That's the point. He didn't know. If you only take steps in your life that you know, that's not faith. You and I don't know what's going to happen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We don't know what's coming next, but we trust the one who does. Abraham's faith went beyond an ascent to facts. He, stuck his, he stakes his life, his reputation. He stakes his actions, leans his whole weight on what God has said. And because he believes, he moves to a foreign land. Because he believes, we're going to see next week, he's willing to sacrifice his own son. He took a step of faith. Abraham got on the roller coaster. Abraham sat in the chair. Abraham believed in his God. What was the result? God credited it to him as righteousness. He put righteousness on Abraham's account. Now let's be very clear. It is not because Abraham was good. Because he wasn't. Abraham's a scoundrel. There's several times we read in the stories that Abraham's afraid that they're going to take him out because they want his wife. And he goes, oh, that's my uh, sister. Abraham's a coward. He's a liar. There are many times throughout Scripture that we see faults at Abraham. We just saw earlier in this chapter Abraham doubting what God is telling him. Just like you and I. He has times when he doubts that Abraham is a sinner on the same par as the rest of all creation. He's not better than anybody. It's important to understand that God did not accept Abraham because of his works. It's not because he moved. It's not because he was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice He credited Abraham righteousness because of his faith, but because it was a genuine faith, and genuine faith will always do this, his faith resulted in works. Do you see the difference? God does not accept us because of our works. He accepts us because of our faith, but our faith will always result in action and obedience. But you say, wait a second, though. So he just believes in God, and God says, now I'm not going to punish you? Doesn't somebody have to die for those sins? Jesus hadn't even come yet. So how could, he, how could he accept Abraham? Somebody has to pay for those sins. Well, that's exactly right. In Galatians 3, it says, So all who put their faith in who? Their faith in Christ. Share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Here's the good news. If you and I put our faith, it demands an object, if our faith in Christ, that he died for us, that he is our only righteousness, our only means of being accepted before God, it says we receive the same blessing that God will count us right in his sight just like he counted Abraham right in his sight. Implication, it's the same object. It's the same object. Everybody on earth for all time has been saved the exact same way. And Romans 3 clarifies this. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And here it is. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in the past. So this is Abraham. Abraham sinned in the past. God was fair in not sending him to hell, in not punishing for his sins. Why? Verse 26, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. 
God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. The only difference between you and I and Abraham is that we look back and Abraham looked forward. But it's the belief in the same God and the same deliverer. Now, Abraham did not have as much information as we do. We know a lot more about Jesus, who he was, and specifically that he came to earth. But both of us are believing that the only way we can come to God is God's way, the way he provides. Abraham, his credit was like an advanced payment. Do you believe what I'm saying now? When Jesus comes and dies for sins, did he not die for all sins, past, present, and future? He covers those in the past who looked forward in faith. So let's make some application and we'll be done. First question, what's the object of your faith? And I want us to be, don't give me the Jesus Sunday School answer this morning. Think of this, this is on your own, honesty, gut check time with God. What's the object of your faith? Is it, is it, is it saying, God, you're going to accept me, and what I'm putting my faith in is my own ability to please you, that I go to church as much as I can, that I try to be a nice person, that I'm way better than my neighbor? Is the object of our faith our, ourselves and our own work? Or is the object of our faith Christ and his shed blood? And remember, it's not just a mental ascent saying, I, I know the facts. We, all of us in this room, know that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. We know the fact. But are you leaning your whole weight on it? And you know how you know you are? Second question. Does your faith result in obedience? This one's tougher. Does your faith result in obedience? James 2 says, listen, faith without work is useless. It means nothing. It's not helpful. It's not useful. That, 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 that's, it's, it's nullified. It's not faith. If it doesn't result in work, it's not even faith. Hebrews 11, what does the whole chapter say? By faith, he did this. By faith, she did that. All these people in the hall of faith are evidencing their faith by the things that they did, by the ways that they obeyed God. Matthew 7, Jesus says, I'm going to know that you're a follower of me. How? I know a tree by its fruit. He says, if you're not bearing fruit in your life, then there's no root there. And you say, well, what kind of fruit are we call, being called to bear? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And if we're not evidencing love and joy and peace and patience and self-control and faithfulness in our lives, if that's not being seen at all, he goes, what? In fact, he actually uses pretty harsh language in 1 John 4. He says, listen, if you claim to love God, but you hate your brother, you don't know God. You don't believe. You can't, there's no way you can love God and not love another. It's a package deal. Our faith will be evidenced in our works. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It's a far cry from that. But what it's saying is if you look over the course of your life and there is no fruit, there is no evidence of a Christ in you. Listen, when Christ comes into us, he changes us. He gives us new desires. He gives us new purpose. He gives us new fruit. He says, if none of that's evident in your life, have you leaned your whole weight onto this? Where is your faith truly placed? And you might say, that's scary. There's no way I can do the things God has called me to do. Exactly. Exactly. It is Christ in me. It's his righteousness, not yours. You were saved by putting your faith in Jesus, and we grow by putting our faith in Jesus. Not in my own ability to obey his, his uh, law, his commands. I'd be up a creek. My faith is in him, that he who began a good work in me will finish it. And he's never going to ask me something that he is not giving me, doing in me by his grace. Why does he do it that way? So that just like in Abraham, he says, so that I alone will get the glory. 
And so he chose this ragamuffin group of people in this gymnasium today to do some amazing things in and through to glorify his name. Father, we come to you this morning. The only way we can come to you this morning, and that's by the blood of Jesus. We dare not enter your presence. We dare not even attempt to, to speak your name, but by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, I'm a fellow struggler with those in this room this morning that we often try to place our faith in other things and in our own abilities or in someone else or in an object or in a promotion or whatever it is and we misplace our faith. God, I pray that you'd bring us to a place of repentance that we turn from that to you and place our faith in Jesus Christ alone to know the only way that we're acceptable to you, the only way that we're counted right in your sight is through Jesus Christ. May we have, you give us the grace to lean our whole weight on that and to say amen, God, to the promises that you've made to us, even when they're crazy, so that we show that you alone are the one that will get the glory. It's in your son's beautiful name that we were saved, that we grow, and that we pray. Amen.